This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with NBA All-Star Mark Eaton. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can actually tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. (laughs) Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, Mark Eaton, pro basketball player, Hall of Fame speaker, best-selling author, public speaker, philanthropist, and one of my dearest friends, who has since passed away in a tragic accident, shares his unbelievable inspirational life story of going from car mechanic to NBA all-star and what he learned that led him to write and teach the four commitments of a winning team. Welcome to my program. How are you, good buddy? Thanks, Dan. What an introduction. (laughs) Well, you should record that and take me on the road, baby. You know, (laughs) seems like all we ever do is pass each other in an airport. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. It's great to talk with you. No, I appreciate you jumping on here. And for all of my listeners, my followers, you need to hear the story of Mark Eaton, because as we are doing our best to come out of the COVID-19, as we're doing our best to make sense of this new normal, what Mark Eaton brings to our fight, what he brings to our senses is the reality that crisis does not make or break the man or woman. It just reveals the true character within. Mark's been at this level of mindset uh, since since his his youth. And will you please take us back to your story in a consolidated way where as you grew up, uh, you were faced with people always asking you, hey, are you a basketball player? Just take us back. I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but I want everybody to hear your consolidated story. Well, thanks, Dan. You bet. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm originally from Southern California, and um, and growing up, I was always tall, and uh, even from a very young age. My father was 6'9", my mother was 6'1", and uh, so I grew rapidly and often uh, throughout my uh, young life, and so uh, there was always that feeling of being different or standing out, and then, yeah, kids made fun of you, and things like that. And then as I, as I got into my teenage years, it was, became even more uncomfortable because now once you get over like six, seven, six, eight, you know, and you're going up, it's uh, you you stand out everywhere you go. And that was always very challenging for me because everybody would say that, why aren't you playing basketball? And I didn't run around telling everybody else what they should be doing with their lives. And I didn't feel it was their place to tell me what I should be doing with mine. And so it, it pretty much shut me down socially uh, as a young man. And then, um, and then sports were uh, kind of uh, another challenge. I, I played sports growing up with my friends at the park and things like that. But once we got to high school, uh, I, uh, the basketball thing really um, I struggled with. I wasn't very good at it. I was growing. I was uncoordinated. And, you know, most high school coaches are like the English teacher that they say, hey, you want to make some extra money? You're, you're the basketball coach now. And so the coaches really didn't know what to do with this big guy who was kind of uncoordinated. And so I I sat on the end of the bench and kind of struggled through high school with that, with the whole basketball thing. And, and at the end of my senior year, it was like, well, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's time to, uh, time to give this up and uh, go get a job or do something. And I, I really wasn't interested in going to a university at that point in time. And, and um, a friend of mine uh, was going to trade school in Arizona and I had grown up working on engines. My father is a diesel mechanic. And so I was pretty familiar with that kind of work and, 
So I went to Arizona for a year to go to trade school to learn to be an auto mechanic. And then I was back in Southern California and I was working at a, at a tire store for a couple of years. And it was at a, a very busy intersection. And um, one day I was out there talking to a customer trying to sell a brake job or a tune-up or something. And and a, a junior college basketball coach happened around the corner and saw the seven foot two, seven foot four guy standing out there and immediately came in and uh, wanted to know exactly why I wasn't playing basketball, what I'd been doing all my life, where I, where, how did I get here? And um, was really quite annoying with it. And, uh, <laughs> and I rebuffed him at first. I was like, you know, you want your car fixed or not, but let's like stop with all the, the dribble about being tall and being a basketball player because every single person that came in in my shop uh, asked me that same question. Um, and let me interrupt you for a second. I want I want my listeners to visualize the seven foot four guy under a Volkswagen Beetle working on the on the engine. So his head sticking out the the, the front of the car and his feet are sticking out the back of the car. That's got to get a coach's. It's got to get everybody's attention, right? And then you well, climb out from from under the car. You're you're selling a brake job. The coach stops and says, wow, uh, I, have you always been muscular or were you like me in high school? I was so skinny. I had to jump around in the shower to get wet. So I can, yeah, I was, I was, what he looked like. I was pretty skinny and lean at that point in time. Um, and, um, I don't know, I probably, you know, at seven foot four, I probably weighed two thirty-five or two forty or something like that. Not, not very much for that size frame. And, um, but uh, in any case, this coach, um, he, he kind of kept coming back. He, he went away the first day and he came back the next day and he said he had like a rattle under his hood and wanted to go for a drive around the block, which was really just a ruse to get me in the car to talk about <laughs> basketball. And um, he brought me basketball shoes. He tried all these things to get me to even just talk to him. And, um, and finally, he said, you know, he said, you know, look, I, I know some things about the game of basketball that you don't know. I know things specifically designed for big guys that you've probably never heard of before. And he said, if you would just give me 30 minutes on the basketball court, let me show you a couple of those things. You know, if you don't like what you see, I, I'll leave you alone. You can just go on about your life. I said, finally, there's an end to this. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so we went over to the junior college on a Saturday morning and he started showing me these very simple basketball moves down near the basket, things I could do without dribbling the ball, like, you know, catch the ball, take a step across the key hook shot kind of things. And uh, there was about seven or eight moves that he showed me that were very simple like that. And it was intriguing. And he said, you know, I've worked with some other big guys who have gone on to some great success. And if you're willing, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be here for you. And we could start working out after you get off of, of work at the shop. And let's just see how this goes for a little bit. And it was intriguing enough for me that I said, well, uh, if this guy's, willing to teach me and at least I can do is listen to him a little bit. And, and so we started doing that after work and, um, and, you know, first couple of weeks were, were pretty rough, but I think the thing that kept me going was his, his commitment to me. He just said, look, if you want to do this, I'll be here for you every morning, every evening and, and show you these things. And so after doing that for three or four months um, and getting myself a little better condition, um, I decided, all right, I'll try it for one year. Let's see what happens. And, um, you know, I mean, I get a year of junior college out of it, great. Uh, and so um, I, he convinced me to go back, and, and I made the commitment to do it. And uh, that's, how, that's how it started. So what you've taught the world is that, 
it's it's so awesome when we come in contact with someone who doesn't see us for who we are they see us for what we have the power to become and i see how that's translated into your ability to make everybody else around you better it it, it inherently taught you to make your teammates better and tie us into the lessons you learned through that experience um, where some days you're discouraged, some days you're down, and what kept this passion, the, the first of the three Ps, what, what kept your passion to fix what's broken and keep getting better and better alive? Well, I, I think primarily it was this man's commitment to me, because as I went through my junior college and then on to my career at UCLA, which was, was uh, less than exemplary, I sat on the end of the bench there too, after a couple of good years at junior, in junior college, this coach, Tom, just said, look, you have to keep the long term in mind here. We're not here to be a success at UCLA. We're here to have a chance to play professional basketball, whether it's in the NBA, overseas, wherever it might be. And, um, and so he said, you know, if you're not going to play in the games, you're going to have to make the practices your games. You have the first half practice and the last sleep. You're going to have to continue to do your running, continue to hit the weight room. And so what he was teaching me was that it was more about the preparation and constant persistence that was the key to success as opposed to one minute of glory here or there. And, um, and because he had committed himself to me, I just said, okay, you know, I, I just really believed that he could see a little bit further than I could at the moment. And I just kept working and that prepared me for when I did get a chance to try for an NBA team two years later, that, um, that I was ready because I listened and continued to work despite not having any immediate success around me. So that brings us to the second tale to talk about, which you're an epitome of preparation. So take us back to UCLA. What was happening? Take us back to an experience you had with another big NBA star who taught you a little bit more about your position. But talk about, about the preparation that allowed you to take advantage of the opportunity when you finally got that opportunity to, to try out for the Utah Jazz. So one afternoon at the men's gym at UCLA, which was where they had these extraordinary pickup games every afternoon, and all the great players in Los Angeles would be there playing against each other and testing their skills against one another. And, and um, it was a very quick-paced, fast game that, that I was struggling with. I seemed to always be behind the play a few feet, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where I fit out there. And it was very frustrating for me because not only was I wasn't, I wasn't playing during the season, now summer league's becoming a struggle too because the game seems to be moving beyond me. And, um, and so one day I'm out on the court and I'm, and I'm trying to chase one of the other guards on the other team named Rocket Rod Foster, who's like the fastest human being I've ever seen. And, and he was getting to the basket and I was barely getting across half court. And, and it was really frustrating. I'm standing on the sidelines and taking a break for a minute. I'm just kind of holding my shorts and really kind of feeling sorry for myself a little bit. And, and I feel this big, large hand on my shoulder and I turn around and well, it's, well, it's Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, he had retired from the NBA a few years earlier and lived up in Bel Air up above the campus. And, and, um, and he said, young fella, you know, he said, first of all, you're never going to catch that man. And he said, more importantly, it's not your job. And so Wilt grabbed me by the arm and he said, come with me. He said, come on out here on the basketball court. And he put me right in front of the basket. He said, you see this basket behind you? He said, your job is to stop players from getting there. Your job is to make them miss their shot, then collect the rebound, throw it up to the guard, let them go down the other end and score it. And your job is to kind of cruise up to half court and see what's going on. <laughs> uh, and it was this real um, 
extraordinary experience for me because he took the whole mystery of the game of basketball away from me. He showed me exactly what I could be good at, exactly what I could do to, to help my team, and something that I could thrive at. And he said, this is your job. Your job is to protect the basket. You've got to be the last line of defense. And he said, if you do that, you know, good things will come. And so from that moment forward, I quit trying to do all the things I wasn't very good at. I focused on the one thing that I was great at. And that little five-minute conversation, you know, took me a few years later to break in the NBA record for the most block shots in a single season. And, um, and so when, we, when I got the opportunity to try for the Jazz, I remember one day in particular, um, uh, Frank Layden, who was the coach, you know, took a chance on me. You know, it was a very unproven talent, and and um, he took a chance on me. And so he puts me in a game, and you know, we're playing the Dallas Mavericks. And they're an expansion team, and he puts me in the game in the second quarter. This is about a month into the season, and I block like six shots in five minutes. And I remember turning up the court after blocking one of those shots and glancing over at the bench. And the coaches were nodding to each other on the bench. I said, okay, I can do this job. And, uh, and so I became the, you know, the anchor of the defense for our team. And we built a philosophy and a culture around that of uh, helping each other on defense and, and doing a fast break on opportunity and really trying to push the ball up the floor. Uh, and, um, and it became a, a culture of the team that I think still exists today, some close to 35 plus years later. Uh, that um, that that's what our team is known for. And so I call that doing your job, doing that one thing you're excellent at. You know, when I had a chance to interview Magic Johnson, I asked him how he became a point guard at 6'9", and he said his dad convinced him as a young man that it was just as cool to make a cool, great pass as it was to make a cool, great shot. And he focused in on what he was good at and so many comparisons between Magic Johnson and Mark Eaton are still out there behind your back that the two of you are so famous for making all of your teammates around you better. And I want everybody to understand that blocking shots is a, is a quality into itself. You have to have perfect timing. You have to have perfect positioning and get your feet in the right place. What, what game have I watched several times where you set an NBA record and blocked how many shots in the same game? 14 or something? What was that against, I think, yes. it was Seattle? Or uh, I, did was it? It a few, I did it two or three times against different teams. I think Seattle maybe, the Spurs, Portland, I think. I don't remember. I have to go back and look. But, but to rise yeah. to the occasion of what you're good at, you, you, you experience this amazing preparation your whole life that has prepared you for – the championship now let's go back to the run we just watched the last dance that highlighted the documentary that highlighted that the bulls and proudly i was a fan that went to every single game that year every single uh playoff game the united center um to 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 think about uh the preparation that that you put in that allowed the jazz to take it to the next level and as you said, even after your retirement, your legacy still leads on. Defense wins games. This is the Mark Eaton legend that we need to talk about. Talk about the preparation uh, that, that you put in, how many hours, what you did at practice that allowed you to perform at the game, the, the highest level of game time. Well, I think every time you go to the next level, 
there's required preparation that you don't know about, you're not aware of until you actually go and do it. And when I came into the NBA, uh, and it was the era of the big man who dominated at the low post down close to the basket. It was either kill or be killed down there. And, uh, and I found that I wasn't strong enough to really hang with uh, the likes of Bob Lanier and Artis Gilmore and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, and so um, I had to double down and, in the weight room and really get my body in better condition. And uh, I spent a lot of time doing squats and cleans and other things uh, uh, back then to prepare myself uh, along with the rigors of the NBA season. We were playing five games in seven nights in five different cities. Uh, you have to have yourself in top condition. And until you experience it, you don't really know what's required of you. And once I experienced it, I said, oh boy, now I've, you know, I'm going to be good at this job. I have to prepare myself daily to do a great job. So it was physical preparation and the mental preparation of the beginning of the game I would walk around the key and I would say, this is my house in here, like the painted area under the, under the basket. I would say, this is my house. Nobody gets in here. And if you come into this area, this is, this is, you're going to deal with me and you're going to remember me tomorrow morning when you wake up. And uh, that's just how we lived in the, in the eighties and in the NBA, in the NBA. And so that kind of daily preparation, I think created a consistency that stood the test of time where the, the team knew what they could count on me for. And they had chances to trade me over the years and, diff and different things. And, and they never did because um, I was, uh, I was prepared uh, and they knew that I'd come to work every day, ready to go. So tie that into every, every one of us who is listening, who's never been a professional athlete. How do you, how do we make ourselves irreplaceable? You were irreplaceable for 12 seasons. And well, your, your, your I, I, reputation is consistency, consistency, consistency. Yeah, and I think that's um, – it's really about becoming invaluable to your team, to your customers, uh, and finding ways to – I don't know if endear yourself is the right term, but become just so um, so uh, valuable that they can't do things without you and can't imagine doing things without you. And I think that's when I go out and speak to corporations, it's – it's doubling down kind of on who you already are. What are the traits and skills that you already have that you can leverage in your relationships with the people that you deal with? There's a reason people do business with you. And it's not always, and usually it's not because you have a great product or service. That's a part of it. But it's because they like you. It's because they like doing business with you. And, um, and sometimes we get so caught up in the new whiz-bang gadget idea that we forget that it's, it's a people business. And, um, and I think that's... That's the key. They, uh, I was easy to work with. I did what the coaches asked me to do. And, um, and I think that's why I hung for so many years. So teach us about how you perfected. It's what you do away from the ball that also contributes. So you didn't always have to be the one with the ball shooting. You didn't even have to have the ball to pass it. It's what you did away from the ball that still allowed you to contribute to the team spirit. So talk about how each employee must come to work and feel valued and feel needed. And if they don't, it's not the boss's fault necessarily. It's their fault. They've got to do something on a daily basis to prove to themselves that they're invaluable, that they are needed. Talk about the mindset of what you do away from the ball and relate that to, uh, to our everyday life, if you would. 
Well, I, you know, I, I, I see this even in my kids. I was having a discussion with my son right this morning about, and he drives a truck right now, and he was whining about this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, dude, your job is to show up on time, not give him any, any, any grief, and do what you've been asked to do. And I think sometimes we get so wound up in what's not working right with our jobs or, or with our boss that that we um, we kind of take away our, our, some of our own opportunities because there are opportunities to thrive. There's opportunities to get out there and do a better job. And I think um, it's just a mindset that you have to come to work with every day. And that's what I did with the Jazz. I mean, you know, we had losing streaks where we'd lose three or four games in a row and things weren't going well. And the, the press would start talking uh, about you or sports radio would start talking about you. And, and those were the times when you just had to double down on, on your preparation and get ready to play the next game. There were times when we had to close the locker room and, and work out our differences with each other. Uh, because uh, the NBA, you can't wait till the next board meeting or the next offsite retreat. It's, uh, it's we have to figure out winning today. Uh, otherwise, we might all be living in a new city next week. They trade you all. And so um, I, I think that that cultivated that that philosophy of like, there's nothing here we can't work out. We can't figure this out. We we just have to sit down and, and try. And we got to get past our personal differences so that we can work back together and get the job done. And that was a that was a daily requirement. So, ladies and gentlemen, you can tell that our guest Mark Eaton is brilliant. He's smart. He's so articulate. He represents every professional athlete in the in the proper way. And I say that with a little frosting on the cake because he's a devoted husband to the beautiful and amazing Terry, who we are friends with. And what you just said about preparation, about passion, about working out your differences and about winning right now and not putting it off. Relate that to your personal relationship with Terry. I love the way you love her. And it's so fun to be out with you socially to see how you look at each other. It's a real deal, bro. And I well, know well, able to create that as a professional athlete with teammates in a less intimate way, obviously, but the ingredients are exactly the same. Talk to us about that. Well, I think when it comes to the personal relationship, it's, 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 uh, I think, honoring and respecting the other person's gifts. Um, and, you know, we don't marry people that are exactly like us for a reason, uh, because they're there to balance us. And sometimes the things they do drive us crazy, but you have to learn over time to have an understanding and appreciation for that person's gifts and what they bring to the party. And I think be there completely for them and their success and whatever that, whatever that looks like. Um, because, um, that's, I think what makes it work. And the moment you start looking at someone else and, and thinking that they're the reason you're not doing something, you, you cross that line. I love that. I love that book. And I know Dan, you're familiar with this lady, Byron Katie, um, who talks about there's three kinds of business in the world. There's my business, there's your business, and there's God's business. And your job is to stay in your business. And so, so as soon as you start looking outside of yourself, that somebody else is doing something that you think is causing your demise in some way, shape, or form, you're, you've already lost. And uh, so it's, it's a practice. It's a daily practice. But, um, but I think that's what makes us work is because we do honor each other and we do respect each other. And I, I wake up in the morning and I ask my wife, what can I do for you today? How can I make your life easier today? And uh, just that kind little comment in the morning just just resets everything. And, and um, you know, and a lot of times she'll just say nothing. Just love me and, and thank you for asking. 
Uh, and that's that's the kind of stuff I think that makes it work. Which is the same mindset of an NBA championship team, the same mindset of a small business or a Fortune 500 company. That's That's so awesome, you know. Just think for a moment, ladies and gentlemen, if one day Frank Clayton, the coach of the Jazz, decided to make Mark the point guard and put John Stockton as the center, they wouldn't win any games. So you have to keep doing what you're good at and keep preparing yourself and not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. I think that's what you just taught us. And from an entertainer's perspective, you brought up one a memory of one of my favorite quotes, Frank Sinatra never set up his own microphone. We surround ourselves with people who do what they do best and allow us to do what we do best. And uh, I think you've been alluding to that the entire conversation. So let's get to the third PV because I love just talking to you and I don't mean to dissect our conversation into three P's, but the consistent pursuit of your passion of excellence in all you do, <laughs> excuse me, has now permeated into your profession, your post-MBA stardom, where now you are a businessman. You are a legitimate uh, Hall of Fame speaker. You just haven't gotten the award yet, but we all know you are, and a best-selling author. Talk to us for a moment about that transition, and if I can put some words in your mouth, in my experience with you as a great friend, there was no transition. You're still thinking the same way you were when you were an athlete and when you were a mechanic to be the very best version of yourself, which turned you into this amazing speaker and this amazing best-selling author. Talk to us about the similarities and, and then let's just uh, kind of wind up our conversation about your amazing book before commitments. Well, I think that um, I did take the same mindset because I remember working with the, the coach that helped me kind of put my presentation together. As, as we went through the stories and tried to find the best stories and, and the points that we were going to make. And, and as we were working together, she said, you know, it strikes me that you don't just want to be a speaker. Like you want to be at, and like, a, like an all-star speaker, like you were an all-star player. And I said, yes. She goes, she said, okay. That's that's my marching orders, and I now know what we need to what to to create with this. And um, and so I hadn't really thought about that before. Because when you start something new like speaking, it's challenging, right? I mean, it's getting uh, in front of people. I'm I'm not uh, you know I'm kind of shy to begin with. I'd rather read a book. And so to stand up in front of a group of people and and present them, much less uh, motivate them and transform them, and in the, the time we have on stage was a great undertaking. Um, but it's the same thing. It was persistence. It was like the one thing, then the other. Then, you know, my first speech was reading my speech to the chiropractor's office and then went to the Rotary Club and it just built from there over time. And so sometimes you got to start back at the bottom, but I already knew what it was like to be at the top and I knew where I wanted to go. And so that made it a little bit easier, despite it taking a long time to, uh, you know, to get the, uh, the ground, hit the ground and, 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 get what I needed to do over with so that I could start to, to thrive in that business. So I challenge everyone to buy a copy of his book, The Four Commitments. And uh, so we're not going to take any time dissecting those four commitments. I want to leave it to everybody's curiosity so they actually do buy your book. And let's just cut to, the, to a final question, bro. I've always wanted to ask you this, you know, having been to your wedding and just watching what has happened in your life as a speaker and as an author, 
I want to ask you a question I love to ask all of my guests. It's, it stems from Randy Pausch, Professor Randy Pausch. He's the one that coined the phraseology last lecture. So, bro, if you had one speech to give, if you had one hour to live with all of your experiences, personal and professional, what's your takeaway? What's the one message you want to leave to the world as part of your legacy so that people start quoting? You know, Mark Eaton said, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mark Eaton said, teach us, bro, you're on the hot seat. But I think you, uh, you know, I'm, Dan, I'm a big believer in, in what my junior college coach did for me as he committed himself to me. And, and I leave my speech with, you know, saying that if you commit yourself to others, the rest will come. And, uh, and I think that's the one thing I would be my legacy. It's like, would be that, Hey, Mark committed, committed himself to the people around him. And that's what made it work. And that's what made him better. And so it made people around him better. And so I think that would be my, my final epitaph that uh, he committed himself to others. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been the amazing Mark Eaton, MBA All-Star, best-selling author, extraordinary professional speaker, Hall of Fame human being. And I challenge all of us to just take his words, his closing comment to heart, that if we obligate, if we commit ourselves to the service of others, to make everybody else around us better, teammates, employees, coworkers, and especially our spouses, our significant others, our loved ones, everyone will leave saying, I like me best when I'm with you, I wanna see you again. If I could put Mark Keaton in a nutshell, that's what I would say about him, that he's the same off the court as he is on the court. He epitomizes everything that is required for us to become power players. And you know his wisdom is generational. And I thank you, brother. You're just one of my heroes. God bless you. And I can't wait to hang out with you and Terry in the near future. You have a great day. Thank Thank you, buddy. All right. Keep up the good work. Thanks, man. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.